Welcome to GMFC Studios, God's production company. Praise the Lord, everybody. It's so good to see each of you joining in. We're excited about what the Word of God is going to be for you today. I told you last week that we would get back to you um, to finish out what we had started uh, last week, talking about being more than just a priest. There are so many things that we uh, don't talk about concerning Christ, and it limits us in having a full understanding. But just before we get into the Word, we just want to salute each and every one of you, thank those that have come out to the studio. We thank the Lord for their presence here, and we're just excited about what God is doing. Amen? You know, the first thing that we really need to realize about the Lord uh, Jesus is that he was not just a priest. He was both priest and king. And his priestly ministry is seen in the Gospels while his kingly ministry is seen after the resurrection. In the book of Matthew, just turn with me to this scripture. In the book of Matthew, the 10th chapter and the 8th verse, Jesus is very priestly. He says, heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, raise the dead, cast out demons. Freely you have received, freely give. Jesus imparts an anointing. He lights the candlestick of the 12 and he sends them off to minister in the power of the Holy Spirit. But turn, flip to the um, book of Revelation and go to chapter two because you're gonna see something starkly different. In the second chapter, in the fourth and fifth verse, we see Jesus speaking to the church at Ephesus, and he says, Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the first works over, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. You see, in the gospel account, Jesus lit the candlestick as a priest. But in the Revelation account in chapter 2, the church of Ephesus, he said, if you don't repent, I will remove your candlestick. That's not a priestly action. Removing the candlestick is the prerogative of a king, and it's based off of judgment. In the book of John, chapter 8, 1 through 11, Jesus ministers to a woman who is caught in adultery. Very famous story in the Bible. You don't even have to be a believer to have heard this story. People talk about it. People preach about it. They exegete it. They, you know, do all these wonderful things in relationship to it. But I think that we've missed something very important because in this scripture, we see the priestly side of Jesus. He's very, very priestly. In fact, he says, Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. But as amazing and beautiful that is, and that side of Jesus that we see, if we go back to Revelation, to the second chapter, the 20th through the 22nd verse, we see that Jesus is addressing the church at Thyatira. And Jesus says this, Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. Because you allowed that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, 
to teach and beguile my servants to commit sexual immorality and to eat things sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent of her sexual immorality, and she did not repent. Indeed, I will cast her into a sickbed and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation unless they repent for their deeds. So again, we see in the gospel account of Jesus being brought the woman caught in the act of adultery as a priest. He forgives the woman that is caught, caught in the act of adultery. But in the Revelation account, in Revelation 2, as a judge, we see Christ judging all the earth. He commands those in the church of Thyatira to repent or else they are going to be thrown into great tribulation. Now, if you go back to the gospel account, you'll find that there is no uh, declaration as to what happens if she did not sin anymore. Jesus just said to her, I don't condemn you, go and sin no more. This is a priestly act. But in Revelation, he gives the consequence. In other words, the judgment for what happens if you do not repent. And I know that there are people that believe uh, that there's no way that a loving God could bring judgment. Don't be beguiled by the enemy or fooled by uh, words that sound eloquent and uh, educated. Once Jesus ascended, he became the judge of all the earth. And that judging starts with the church. We cannot faithfully represent Jesus the judge if we only know and talk about Jesus the Savior. In 1 Peter 2, uh, the second chapter, the 18th through the 24th verse, we are told, servants, be submissive to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the harsh. For this is commendable. If because of conscience to, toward God, one endures grief, suffering wrongly, for what credit is it if you, when you are beaten of your faults, that you take it patiently? But when you do good and still suffer for it, if you take it patiently, this is commendable before God. For to this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps, who committed no sin, nor was guile found in his mouth, who, when he was reviled, did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously, who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness, by whose stripes you were healed." So while we look and examine the text, Peter is very, very priestly. And he warns us that when we are reviled, not to revile in return. And when we uh, suffer, not to threaten, but to commit ourselves to him who judges righteously. But if we look in Acts, the fifth chapter, here again, Peter is talking. We'll get the fifth chapter. We'll go to the first and the, through the third verse. We see this transition that takes place in Peter. Now remember what I just read to you is a priestly response. But as we go back to Acts and we look at what Peter's doing here, we find there's a quick transition. He 
transitions into kingly mode and he announces the death of Ananias and Sapphira. Well, why? Well, because they lied. He judged them because they lied about their giving. Now, we know, according to Scripture, they fall at his feet dead. How is it that he can exhort us to be priestly and then turn right around and in uh, Acts 5 transition into another man acting like the judge of all the earth in declaring the death of Ananias and Sapphira? The thing we have to understand is that when we're facing insidious sin, threatening the young church, Peter brought throne room justice. Throne room justice. Not Peter's justice, not Peter's judgment, but throne room justice. The judgment seat of Christ was manifested at the feet of Peter. Now, those of us in ministry are responsible for the condition of the church. It's a great responsibility. And by emphasizing Jesus the Savior, we have hidden Jesus the judge. Jesus the judge delivered the early church from mammon by removing the carriers of mammon. And as ministers, we have prepared the church to attempt to save the carriers of mammon instead of by faith removing the carriers of mammon. Now Jesus in Revelation kills in order to save. Let me say that to you again. If you look at Revelation and you understand what's taking place in the book of Revelation, we see Jesus kills in order to save. Do we really know who Jesus is? Month after month and year after year, we continue to lose our nation. Generation after generation, we're losing our nation. Freedoms our forefathers died for are now gone. We struggle against what is happening. We, we've prayed for renewal. And this prayer has enabled, this uh, lack of prayer rather, has uh, enabled renegade judges to continue sitting on the benches of justice and stealing our own heritage. There is little fear of God in the church, let alone the fact that there is really none in our government anymore. How do we change this? Well, it would only change when the church represents Jesus, the judge. God consistently saved by removing the enemy in answer to prayer. We have covenant access to a judicial throne and we have to learn how to use it. Let me say that again for you. We have covenant access. We are in contract with God to access not just the blessings of the throne, but the justice of the throne. We have access to a judicial throne, not just a healing throne, not just a blessing throne, not just a delivering throne, but also a judicial throne. But we don't talk about that too much. And because we don't talk about it, no one understands its existence nor how to use it. Now, the Apostle Paul had to follow in the same footsteps as Peter in learning about the two ministries of the Lord Jesus. In the book of Romans, the 12th chapter, 
Paul exhorts us in verses 17 through 21 to be very priestly. He says, repay no one evil for evil. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. If it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Therefore, if your enemy hungers, feed him. If he thirsts, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap coals of fire on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Oh, that is so priestly. That is so beautifully, uh, eloquently stated and put in scripture. The, the way to minister to your enemy. But then if we keep reading the book of Romans, and we just go one chapter over to the 13th chapter in verses 1 through 4, we see yet another transition of Paul. Paul, like Peter, declares the kingly judicial side of Christ. He says, let every soul be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And the authorities that, I, that uh, exist are appointed by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God. And those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers are not a terror to do good works, but to evil. Do you want to be unafraid of the authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from that authority. For he is God's minister to you for good. But if you do evil, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is God's minister and avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. So Paul ends the 12th chapter of the book of Romans with an exhortation to be priestly as a witness to salvation. And then immediately in contrast to the priestly ministry, he, he switches into a kingly ministry. Government is a function of the kingly anointing and carries the authority to execute covenant judgment. That's what we talk about, or the scripture talks about being an avenger on those who practices evil. And you thought that Thor was an, an avenger. No, you are an avenger. Jesus bought and paid for authority as a priest and a king. The unique thing about this application is to look at how in the book of Romans, the 12th chapter, Paul tells us that if our enemy is thirsty, <laughs> give him a drink. But in Acts, the 13th chapter, when faced with a formidable enemy who through, decep through deception and uh, you know, is trying to keep him out of his assigned territory, he doesn't give him a drink. Acts 13, 9 through 11 declares, Then Saul, who is also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, Oh, full of all deceit and all, uh, all deceit and all fraud, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, you will not cease perverting the straight ways of the Lord. And now indeed the hand of the Lord is upon you and you shall be blind not seeing the sun for a time. And immediately a dark mist fell on him and he went around seeking someone to lead him by the hand. 
Now, Paul didn't have a hesitation in tapping into the kingly anointing when it was needed in order to break through the barrier that stood before him. You see, the kingly anointing enabled him to bring a priestly message. In American church, in the American church, we know the Jesus of the Gospels, but we do not readily know the Jesus of Revelation. Paul got to know him well enough that he could represent him. Why don't we know the Jesus of Revelation? Most of us stay away from Revelation. Have we abandoned learning the principles of justice? From Genesis to Revelation, the laws governing justice are consistent. Jesus was resurrected and ascended, and when he took a seat at the right hand of God, he became the king, the judge of all the earth, and he exhorts us to learn how to be agents of his justice. And as an agent of justice, we have a responsibility. But herein lies a question. That question is, are we going to accept what we are responsible for and pay the price to grow into the ability to enforce it. In the book of Matthew, the fifth chapter, the 13th verse, we see a perfect description of a church culture which focuses on the priestly ministry of salvation, but is completely lost, ignorant, or unaware of its kingly authority. Jesus said, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it yet be seasoned? It is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. Now, if we look at the etymology of the word, the word good is coming from a Greek word, kohu, and um, it's a word that's used, whose whole uh, usage is established uh, based upon divine justice. So the best dictionary for the Bible is the Bible itself. And if we have accurate interpretation, it demands that we let the Bible defend itself. So its kohu is used in the book of James, the fifth chapter, concerning the ability of a believer to move the hand of God. James 5, 16 through 18 declares, confess your trespasses to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much is kohu so Elijah was a man with a nature like ours and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain and it did not rain on the land for three years and six months and then uh, he prays again and the heaven gave rain and the earth produced its fruit James tells us that in covenant there is no difference between us and Elijah Jesus said that John the Baptist was the greatest prophet in the Old Testament, but uh, who is he? He who is least in the New Testament kingdom is greater than John the Baptist. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man brings Iskohu on the scene, and the example is bringing judgment on a national scale by closing down an agrarian economy, crippling the agrarian economy through drought, brought a showdown between the prophets of Baal to save the land. Wicked King Ahab forfeited the anointing to bring justice by his sinful choices and God released it to Elijah instead. You see, King Ahab believed that Elijah's judicial authority 
crippled the economy of the nation. First Kings 18, 17 through 18, it declares that, it, that uh, when it happened, when Ahab saw Elijah, that Ahab said to him, is that you, O troubler of Israel? Or he, and, and uh, it goes on to say, it says, and he answered, and I have not troubled Israel, but you and your father's house have, and you have forsaken the commandments of the Lord. You have followed balls. Uh, and, and, and when we allow the Bible to therefore defend itself, uh, it presents a yardstick uh, by which we can answer whether or not we have salt. If we can move the hand of God, let me say this again for you. If we can move the hand of God in justice to stop all of the modern day Ahabs and Jezebels, then you have salt. Now from the days of uh, vacation Bible school until now, we've been taught to bless people, to pray for our enemies, because this is the priestly side. Jesus challenges us to have salt like Elijah who didn't bless his enemies. He prayed against the economy and devastated it to remove the defiling proponents of the false gods. Democrats and Republicans who support abortion and homosexual marriage are exactly like the prophets of Baal. Ahab is represented by every minister who by choice refuses to confront sin to gain a larger audience or greater success or brilliance in popularity. One example of Jezebel uh, is every national and local media outlet championing political correctness. Another manifestation of Jezebel is seen spewing her poison in the majority of university classes where she owns the university pulpit. Let the salt arise. Any denomination who chooses to ordain homosexuals or bless homosexual unions should be baptized in salt until they share the same fate as Ahab and the prophets of Baal that they promote. Any and every, including even the Pope. First Kings 17 and 1, 7, uh, it says, it, it, it outlines the beginning of this process. Elijah, the, the Tishbite of the inhabitants of Gilead, said to Ahab, as the Lord God of Israel lives before whom I stand, there shall not be dew nor rain these years except at my word. Then the word of the Lord came to him saying, get away from here and turn eastward and hide by the brook Cherith, which flows into the Jordan. And it will be that you shall drink from the brook. And I have commanded the ravens to feed you uh, there. So he went and he did according to the word of the Lord, for he went and stayed by the brook Cherith, which flows into the Jordan. The ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening and he drank from the brook and it happened after a while that the brook dried up because there had been no rain in the land. Now, the first thing we need to realize in this process is that he, Elijah, prayed specifically to stop all rain, therefore devastating the agrarian economy of the day. Three and a half years of no rain would cripple any economy and bring a nation to its knees. And the purpose was justice 
and judgment for the prophets of Baal. Now, God released an anointing to bring devastation, death, and destruction. What Elijah did, he did not through his own power, but through the power of God working in him. The perpetrators of the defilement, the king who ultimately had the responsibility of judgment and all his family were diligently looking to apprehend Elijah so that they might kill him. And God was willing to reduce the economy to nothing in order to confront what was defiling the nation. You see, the kingly anointing brings justice and in this case gave the people a choice as to who they were going to serve. 1 Kings 18, 37 through 40 declares, Hear me, O Lord, hear me, that this people may know that you are the Lord God and that you have turned and that they have turned their backs, uh, uh, their hearts back to you again. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt sacrifice and the wood and the stones and the dust and it licked up the water that was in the trench. Now when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and they said, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. And Elijah said to them, seize the the prophets of Baal. Do not let one of them escape. So they seized them. And Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and he executed them there. You see, God initiated this judgment through Elijah. God works in the earth through his people. God saved the nation by judging the nation, having salt means bringing justice. The fire fell on the prophets of Baal and they were all executed. The same spirit that inspired Ahab and Jezebel are resident in nations and manifested in even preachers and politicians. Jesus exhorted every believer to have salt. If we don't have a relationship with God that can bring a a kingly judicial anointing, then we have lost our salt. What does salt do? Salt preserves. It represents our ability to preserve a society from a course of destruction. And when there are voices in a culture that parallel the perversion of Ahab and Jezebel by demanding that the nation he, that, that, that the nation that is supported is supporting same-sex marriage, salt then is needed. How would Elijah have prayed for Supreme Court justices who, in their individual arrogance, attempt to legislate Sodom and Gomorrah? We have salt when we can pray the hand of God on those errant justices and see them removed according to Jesus anything less in the New Testament simply means we've lost our salt you see our traditions have blinded us to the judicial ministry of Jesus Jesus is seeking a people who are willing to judge and make war with him Will we answer that call? Are we ready to regain our salt? If so, then we can in faith pray against those whose intent is establishing evil. Evil can only be successful where the church refuses to pray against it. The church does a good job ministering mercy and salvation to the individual, but that's where we stop. The covenant makes salt available to benefit the nation. 
Applying salt on the national level means entering the kingly realm. Elijah was willing to pay the price to enter this realm. Are you? Are we? We spend a lot of time complaining about the wrongs that we see and, and hear. What I hear from the Holy Ghost is that we should not complain if we have not used our authority and prayed against the evil that we face. Believers are so full of mercy that often we have to be forced into action by adversity. Judy Ross, a member of the Betsy Ross family who created the American flag, states this about uh, her grandfather. She says, my grandfather was a pioneer minister in the early 1900s. He was saved and filled with the spirit as a result of the Azusa outpouring. This incident I'm about to share took place sometime in the mid-1920s in Arkansas where he had started one of many churches. The Pentecostal churches were typically on the wrong side of the tracks. With little else for entertainment, three young men showed up at my grandfather's church. One was the son of the town judge, the other the son of the town doctor, and the third the son of the local sheriff. They amused themselves throughout the service by mocking and ridiculing what was taking place. Elders of the church had gone to them and asked them to be quiet or leave with no result. Now, my Irish grandfather took all that he was going to take. In the middle of his sermon, he turned to them and pointed his finger and said, I turn you over into the hands of the living God. They were immediately struck blind. It is important to notice that uh, he did not turn them over to the devil. They were unbelievers and already in the devil's pocket. Now this, of course, terminated the service except for the two that repented. The one who was still blind was led home by the other two imploring him to repent, but he did not. Why wait until we have to be forced into action? We ought to prepare now by learning our covenant. If we learn about justice, like we learned about the gifts of the spirit, faith will rise and action will follow. We are called to be the agents of justice. When will the evil change? Well, the answer, when we decide to pick up the salt and pray against those legislating evil. We're looking at a city here in this great state and we're seeing just last night there were multiple shootings all throughout the city. People's lives hang in the balance because the church refuses to pray against those who are in a position of authority and have created an atmosphere where all kinds of evil is allowed to exist. The Lord is ready. But he's waiting on us. The word even declares the earth is waiting for the manifestation of the sons of God. Jesus gave the disciples an unforgettable example as he taught about this kingly anointing when he cleansed the temple. This event was so offensive it, it resulted in his crucifixion. In the book of uh, Mark, the 11th chapter and the 11th verse, we are told to... Uh, that Jesus went into Jerusalem and into the temple. So when he had looked around at all things, as the hour was already late, he went out to Bethany with the 12. Jesus went in, surveyed the temple, saw the mismanagement. 
saw the rulership of the spirit of mammon, saw the entire religious system captive to a defiling, abominable spirit. Jesus formulated a plan and then he executed it. On the next day in verses 13 and 14, it declares, and seeing from afar a fig tree, having leaves, he went to see if perhaps it would have some fruit. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. In response, Jesus said to him, let no one eat fruit from you ever again. And his disciples heard it. On the way into the temple, he saw a fig tree which was exactly like the leadership of the temple. Leafy and green, looked great, but produced no eternal fruit. He spoke death to the tree. We know he cursed it because Peter comments in, uh, about it in verses 20 through 21, where it states, Now in the morning, as they passed by, they saw the fig tree dried up from the roots. And Peter remembered saying to him, Rabbi, look. The fig tree which you cursed has withered away. The very next day, the fig tree was dead. Peter noticed the day that the fig tree, after Jesus cleansed the temple in verses 15 through 19, Jesus used this example to teach and declare what faith in God can accomplish, whether it's cleansing a temple or in Elijah's case, in case cleansing a nation. Verses 20 through 24 of the book of Mark and the 11th chapter declares, So Jesus answered and said to them, Have faith in God. For as surely as I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, Be removed and be cast into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that those things that he says will come to pass, he will have whatever he says therefore I say to you whatever things you ask when you pray believe that you receive them and you will have them he's talking about a judicial release the removing of things that are blocking the prevailing force of God in the earth now we know that Jesus had judicial authority in mind here because when we look at the parallel passage in the book of Matthew, the 21st chapter, the 21st through the 22nd verse, the initial emphasis is on killing the fig tree. So Jesus answered and said to them, Assuredly, I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what was done to the fig tree, but also if you say to this mountain, be removed and be cast into the sea, it will be done. In all things, whatever you ask in prayer, believing, you will receive. The very first thing mentioned in Matthew's account is not removing the mountain. The first thing Matthew keys on is the killing of the fig tree. Jesus understood kingly authority. We've turned it around and made it about us and uh, made it about going and saying, that's my house, that's my car. I declare it, I decree it, I receive it by faith. And that's not what God was talking about. God is talking about establishing in the earth the kingdom of heaven. Jesus understood kingly authority. He understood the church had to move into that authority. He also understood it was a choice. Our political landscape is full of leafy, green, fruitless fig trees. Why have we removed none of the fig trees? Is our priestly tradition so strong that we are no kingly good? 
Jesus both modeled and taught judicial imprecatory prayer. How could we have neglected this teaching for so many years? Jesus released justice through his words. Death and life is in the power of the tongue. When he spoke death to the fig tree, it died. God authored and honored his words. You see the difference between Eli and Samuel was God honored Samuel's words. Eli allowed mammon and sexual immorality while Samuel, he didn't. Live like Samuel so that God will honor your words. Where are the people of God when it comes to the issue of justice? The answer is seemingly saltless. Is there a path out of our saltlessness? Absolutely. We must run and not walk out of this state of being saltless. Every believer should be an agent of God's justice. And if we are not, we will stand before the judgment seat of Christ and give an account for why we spent the majority of our spiritual life saltless. Blaming saltlessness on ministers while spiritually probable may not absolve the majority of us from personal guilt. Jesus was very explicit with the 12 disciples about the necessity of maintaining their salt. In the book of Mark, the 19th chapter the 49th through the 50th verse he declared for everyone will be seasoned with fire and every sacrifice will be seasoned with salt salt is good but if the salt loses its flavor how will you season it have salt in yourselves and have peace with one another the issue of a priest salting the sacrifice goes to the very core of the priestly ministry a priest without the ability to salt a sacrifice is a worthless priest because he cannot consummate the covenant. What biblical issue is presented when we forfeit salt? Well, perhaps, let me give you a few. Number one, there's the issue that results around money or a spirit of mammon. But that is so broad and wide and deep, it's the subject for another sermon. But let me express a warning to you. Don't even consider attempting to exercise your kingly anointing if you are associated with impure with an impure altar whether it's personal or corporate because the altar sanctifies the gift let me say it again your altar sanctifies your gift you must not be associated with impure altars by sowing into them and if you associate with an impure altar you will not be be able to stand in the fire that you have to kindle as a king to execute a kingly anointing you must be able to stand in the fire you call down Eli could not but Samuel could therefore be like Samuel and resist the urge to be like Eli Peter understood the purity necessary to successfully confront Ananias and Sapphira he identified the filing of the, the, the contributors in, in 2 Peter 2 and 14 saying having eyes full of adultery and that cannot cease from sin beguiling unstable souls they have a heart trained in covetous practices and are cursed children an impure altar is one of her covet, uh, covetous practices which prevail now the top three charismatic 
uh, covetous practices that make an altar impure and therefore dangerous for contributions. And and this is what I hear from the Lord. The Lord told me that there are 20 people here who are going to give $1,000. Stop lying! The apostles warned churches about false prophets stating, no prophet when he ordereth a table in the spirit shall eat of it. Prophesying something we benefit from, uh, you know, makes us a false prophet and guarantees that what is placed on the altar is therefore defiled rather than sanctified and completed. God did not tell you to tell no thousand people to give you no money. Second Peter 2 and 18 warns, for when they speak great swelling words of emptiness, they alone were through the lust of the flesh, through the lasciviousness, and ones who have actually escaped from those who live in error, which applies. Number two, so let me give you three. Hyping signs, hyping wonders, hyping miracles so that they can draw a crowd to improve the offering. This is equally abominable. Feigning words of knowledge, and it, it, it saddens all those who sow into it. It, it. it brings a dysfunction within the life of those that receive it. God intended ministry to establish a pure altar where covenantal giving could be rewarded. Spiritually, we become one with the altar that we sow into. Number three, in Acts chapter 20, Paul told the Ephesian elders he was innocent of their blood because he had not diminished the whole counsel of God. Now, many leaders choose a ministry model which uh, excludes scripture that confronts sin. And with this compromising spirit weaves its way through an altar, the impact can be doubly devastating. I consistently hear the same phrase from those who attend churches where this type of theology is prominent. I am so hungry for growth. When eating half rations, you will inevitably be hungry. You'll have to fight off compromise to get to the truth. Flee impure altars so that you can gain your full quotient of salt. Enhance your discernment and overcome deception by studying, purifying your altar. We cannot dispense justice if we are joined to an impure altar. You see, Jesus didn't just make us priests. He made us kings and priests and he did this for a reason. The kingly anointing can only manifest to a priestly heart where diligence is displayed to maintain salt. Well, how do you maintain salt? Well, the answer is found in the book of Mark and in the ninth chapter, verses 33 through 37, identifying the chief issue that the 12 were struggling with at the time. It declares, then he came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, what was it you disputed amongst yourselves on the road? But they kept silent. For on the road they had disputed among themselves who would be the greatest. And he sat down, called the twelve, and said to them, If anyone desires to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. 
Then he took a little child and set him in the midst of them. And when he had taken him in his arms, he said to them, whoever receives one of these little children in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. Self-ambition was rampant among the 12. And they were all vying for position. The top position had another benefit, control over the treasury. Apparently, the teaching on the servanthood had gone in one ear and out the other. John, the favorite, displayed a judicial choice, but it was outside of a properly exercised priestly heart. Jesus had to correct it. Verses 38 through 41 declare, Now John answered him saying, Teacher, we saw someone who does not follow us casting out demons in your name, and we forbade him because he does not follow us. But Jesus said, do not forbid him, for no one who works a miracle in my name can soon afterwards speak evil of me. For he who is not against us is on our side. For whoever gives you a cup of water to drink in my name because you belong to Christ, assuredly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. Just because an individual was not part of the 12, they assumed that he didn't have the right to move in the anointing. Jesus corrected that quickly. He went on to declare principles that should cause everyone to shake in their boots. Jesus said in verses 42 through 43, and whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for him if, if, a, if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand makes you sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter into life maimed than having two hands and go to hell into the fire that shall never be quenched. Jesus demanded drastic action and, uh, against attitudes which were fleshly in, uh, in, in, in which they defiled a person to the point of losing their reward. There is no way to operate in a kingly anointing from a position of strife or self-ambition. Jesus made it dramatically clear to the disciples, uh, the 12 disciples, and consequently to us in the book of Mark, the ninth chapter, verses 44 through 48, that this is an issue about which we must be specifically serious. Where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. And if your foot makes you sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life lame than having two feet to be cast into hell, into the fire that shall never be quenched, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. And if your eye makes you sin, pluck it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than having two eyes to be cast into hell fire, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. To stand before Jesus and hear, well done, good and faithful servant, demands that we deal with the same fleshly motivations as the 12 and come to a place of servanthood with the chief issue is the will of the Spirit, not our own personal ambition. The 12 disciples for three and a half years enjoyed face-to-face -face relationship with the creator only to culminate in seeming dramatic uh, failure. Perhaps their failure in denying Christ was the greatest preparation for serving him in the New Testament church. 
They discover through failure the necessity of relying on the power of Holy Ghost because the ability to do it was not in them. Paul dramatically outlines the struggle between the flesh and the spirit in the book of Romans. Jesus demanded that we have salt and that we salt ourselves. Having salt and salting ourselves means the ability to simultaneously move in both a priestly and kingly anointing as spelled out in the Sermon on the Mount and the James 5 alert about Elijah's prayer of faith. Justice is available from the throne room and until the church manifests it, they are showing a distinct lack of salt. Justice for a priest and justice for a king have very different manifestations. They are encouraged, blessed, and failures are redeemed along the way. We seem to have a natural propensity to go in this direction because it is very redemptive. It is based on mercy that forgives sin. Justice for a king does not forgive sin. It punishes sin with judgment and therefore it cleanses the land because the sin is removed. The leaven is taken out. It is an entirely different mindset. The problem with the church today is that we view justice only through the corrective eyeglasses of a priest. It is catastrophic to refuse the view of justice through the eyes of a biblical king. Because if we do this, we never embrace the king's anointing that is offered to every believer. In Christianity, our sense of priestly justice comes from the gospels. God sanctified his son to forgive us we have mercy for everyone. But once Jesus was resurrected, once he ascended, once he took a seat at the right hand of God, he entered a distinct and different ministry. He entered the ministry of a king. We are told in Revelation chapter 19, verse, verse 11, exactly what he looks like as the king. The Bible declares, Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on him was called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. Jesus Jesus in Revelation has always been ready to judge and war in behalf of the church. Previous generations found him. We must, if we are to gain the priestly harvest that is promised, find him. Our eyes have been blinded to Jesus the judge. The priestly message is more profitable in building a successful ministry. We are stuck in a priestly mindset and have never transitioned to sit with Jesus at the right hand of God on the throne and interact with the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords who is ready to do for us exactly what he did for David. Justice for a priest meant salvation. Justice for a king means judgment. When Peter stood with Jesus in Acts chapter 5 and proclaimed the death of Ananias and Sapphira, he manifested the justice of a king. Where is that mindset in the church today? It hardly even exists. It must be restored. It must be developed. And faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. I know that today may not have been the sermon that you were looking for or expecting being the proposed season that we're in. But people of God, it is the message that the church needs most. For we have forgotten 
half of what we are. We have denied half of who we are. And as such, our cities, our nation, this world is suffering. It's looking for the church, the manifestation of the sons of God. Will you stand up and execute the fullness of your calling as both a priest and a king? God bless you. Have an awesome Sunday. And I look to see you next week. This has been a production of the GMFC Studios. God bless you.